0: Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, assault, and necrophilia that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: In the early hours of January 27th, 1963, phones around Perth, Western Australia, began to ring.
0: The sun was barely up, but already word was spreading A gunman was on the loose.
1: Police called home to tell their loved ones to lock the doors and stay away from windows. Doctors and nurses treating the victims did the same. As the news made its way around the city, fear pulsed through the quiet streets.
0: There were about 500,000 people living in Perth, so the chances you were somehow connected to the crazed gunman's victims were small, but still no one yet knew who the killer was or where he would strike next. For all anyone knew, they themselves could be next. As phones rang in living rooms around the city, it was the death knell of an innocence that would never return to Western Australia.
1: Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're concluding our two-part series on Australia's Eric Edgar Cook, sometimes known as the Nightcaller or the Nedlands Monster. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
0: Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
1: Last time, we delved into Eric Cook's troubled upbringing, his fascination with cat burglary, and how he squandered several chances at reform. In 1959, after flirting with violence for years, he committed his first brutal murder.
0: Today, we'll follow Cook on his years-long crime spree that left at least seven dead, two men wrongfully imprisoned, and changed the city of Perth forever. We've got all that coming up. Stay with us.
1: Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app, and you're good to go. In January of 1959, 28-year-old Eric Cook was in pain. His face was covered in fresh scratches, drawing even more attention to his recognizable hair-lipped features. If anyone asked what happened, Cook blamed the scratch marks on his eldest son, who was developmentally handicapped.
0: While Cook blamed his son for his injuries, the true culprit was 33-year-old Penina Berkman, when Cook attacked Panina in her apartment on January 29th, she fought back. Her long, manicured nails gouged his face as she tried desperately to repel him.
1: In the end, it was a fight Panina couldn't win. She died on her living room floor after Cook ran from the flat. The city of Perth, Western Australia, was rocked by the shocking murder, and Leeds quickly dried up. Cook left no prints, and DNA technology was too rudimentary to conclusively tie anyone to the blood under Panina's nails.
0: Residents in the Wembley area reported seeing a prowler in the neighborhood on nights leading up to the attack, but no one could give police a clear description of the man, so as long as he kept his head down, Cook was in the clear.
1: And that's just what he did. For the next six months, Cook was relatively inactive but by August, he couldn't control his urges any longer. On the 8th, he left his wife Sally at home with her children and set off into the shadows.
0: He ended up in the affluent area of Midlands. The suburb was popular with students of the nearby university, making it a prime target for Cook, who loved to peek in windows at potential targets.
1: One such student was 17-year-old Alex Duncan, who was spending the night alone at her sister's apartment. As Alex slept, 29-year-old Cook made his way around the building until he found an open window. It was too small and high to be an obvious entry point, which is probably why anyone neglected to close it. But Cook wasn't deterred.
0: Once he managed to scramble through the window, he rifled through Alex's purse, taking what little money the nursing student had... But even as experienced and quiet as Cook was, the teen woke up. Panicking, Cook seized something heavy, perhaps a fire poker, and hit her over the head, knocking her out.
1: Not wanting to wait for the girl to wake up, Cook left the way he came in. Alex was left alone until the next morning, when friends arrived and rushed her to the hospital. In addition to a nasty gash above her eye... Alex suffered a fractured skull and was left with a severe form of epilepsy that derailed her career aspirations and would affect her for the rest of her life.
0: Not that Eric Cook had any cares about the woman whose life he'd just ruined. By the time Alex finally left the hospital in September, he'd already moved on to a fresh suburb full of new houses and clueless victims for the prolific cat burglar.
1: A few months later, his new favorite haunt was the wealthy neighborhood of Brookwood Flats. On an early visit to one apartment building, he stole a key from the ground-floor apartment of Betty Johnston, then returned to burgle the place a few times.
0: Betty's next-door neighbor was her 22-year-old daughter, Jillian Brewer, An interior designer, Jillian caught Cook's eye on one of his visits, and he took pleasure watching through the window as the young woman had sex with her fiancé. But watching evidently wasn't enough.
1: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Greg. In a later assessment of his psychological development... Dr. Aaron Samuel Ellis stated that Cook was sexually naive and afraid of women who might conceivably test his sexual adequacy. It's possible that this misguided fear or hatred of a sexually confident, unmarried woman caused Cook's thoughts to turn to violence. This theory aligns with Cook's first murder victim, Panina Berkman, who had no qualms about having sex outside of wedlock and even had the gall to sleep naked
1: then again, Cook's attack on Panina Berkman seemed by chance. He just happened to find a knife on his prowls that night. But when he set out for Jillian's home on December 19th, he already had murder in mind. As he crept through the quiet streets, he stopped at a garage he'd visited on an earlier date. He was back for something he knew would come in handy, a hatchet.
0: Hatchet in gloved hand, he headed for Jillian's back door and forced his way in. Within moments, he was at her bedside, ready to strike. He raised the blade and brought it down into her sleeping form. He hacked at her body, hitting her with such force that he split the handle of his weapon.
1: Not yet satisfied with the sickening violence, he left the bedroom to find a pair of scissors in the kitchen. He returned, stabbed Jillian a few more times, and was at last done. His frenzy over, he posed her lifeless body to look like she was sleeping peacefully. Then he cleaned the scissors, returned them to the kitchen, and left the flat.
0: On his way out, he tossed the hatchet over the back fence and headed for home, empty-handed for once, but likely feeling accomplished nonetheless.
1: When Jillian's body was discovered the next day, there were few leads for detectives. John Button, a local teen who mowed the lawn, was questioned, but ultimately ruled out as a suspect.
0: Across town, Cook demanded his wife give him an alibi for the night of the murder. Jillian's death was big news, and Cook told Sally that his record would make him an automatic suspect. She agreed to say he was home with her that night.
1: But Sally never had to lie to the police for her husband. In April of 1960, 19-year-old Daryl Beamish was questioned over the murder, Beamish was a deaf mute, awaiting trial for the sexual assault of two young girls, aged four and five. And like Cook, he had a history of breaking and entering.
0: Beamish confessed to the crime, once through an interpreter and then again in a written note. It's likely the false confession was coerced through intimidating police questioning tactics, as well as Beamish's own confusion. According to Estelle Blackburn's book, Broken Lives, Beamish didn't understand why he was sent to prison shortly after or why he couldn't see his family. After the confession, he was charged with Jillian's murder and, after a six-day trial, was sentenced to hang.
1: Luckily, the judicial miscarriage was lessened a few months later, when his death sentence was commuted to life imprisonment with hard labor. But the fact that another man paid for his crime did nothing to slow Eric Cook down. Just days later, the 29-year-old was on the prowl once more.
0: On April 9, 1960, he stole a Holden sedan and drove it around Perth, enjoying the quiet Saturday night. When he saw 20-year-old Glennis Peake, something about her darkened his mood. The young woman was walking home alone after a night out, making her an easy target for the now experienced killer.
1: Cooks swung the car around and sped up, hitting Glennis from behind. But he didn't strike her head on. Maybe his aim was off or he swerved to avoid crashing the car. So, although she was seriously injured, she was able to drag herself through a nearby lumber yard and into her parents' home.
0: The young woman was lucky to escape with her life, but it seemed Cook was determined to keep trying his hit-and-run attacks until someone died.
1: A month later, on Friday the 13th, Cook decided to try his luck. In a stolen Morris Minor, he roamed the streets of Belmont until he spotted 18-year-old Jill Connell walking alone in the dark. The tall 18-year-old was heading home from the bus after her shift at a popular cafe in Perth.
0: Cook followed Jill a short way, frightening her when he sped past her, missing her by inches. Not content with just a scare, he doubled back. As Jill tried to get out of the way, he veered right for her. At speed, he hit the teen, throwing her body up to crash into the windscreen and land on the dirt beside the road.
1: When he tried to reverse the car, likely to finish Jill off, it bogged in the soft earth. Cook fled on foot leaving his latest victim unconscious, bleeding from the head, and with a bone sticking out of her leg. Eventually, neighbors heard her moans through the still night air, and Jill was rushed to the hospital.
0: Even as Jill recovered, Cook was ready for his next attack. The following Friday, May 20th, he chased down three young girls making the half-mile journey home from the train station. In the pouring rain, he collided with 18-year-old Georgina Pittman and 16-year-old Maureen Rogers.
1: Both girls survived the attack, thanks to Maureen's 12-year-old cousin, Therese, who ran for help. In the aftermath, local press spotted the recent pattern and stirred up fears of a, quote, hit-and-run maniac.
0: It was the first time any of Cook's crimes had really been connected and it's possible the added scrutiny convinced him to lay low once more, but not so low that he gave up his creeping ways for good. He stopped running down women in stolen cars for now and returned to prowling and burglary.
1: But in March of 1962, the 31-year-old was ready for something more than his usual B&E's, something new. On March 3rd, he crept into the apartment of 23-year-old Anne Melvin, who had left her back door open. Finding Anne in her bed, he strangled her with a piece of fabric until she lost consciousness.
0: With the young woman helpless, he pulled down her pajama pants and tied her wrist to the bed frame. But before he could sexually assault her, Anne woke up and screamed. Startled, Cook ran from the apartment and into the night. Anne freed herself and gave chase for a few moments before neighbors came to her aid.
1: It was another close call for Cook, and he once again took an unusually long break from his attacks. But in January of 1963, an opportunity presented itself that was too good to pass up, and it would change the city of Perth forever.
0: Coming up, Eric Cook takes his horrific killing spree to a new level.
1: Hi, it's Greg. ParCast has a brand new series sure to become your next podcast obsession. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer, men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alistair Burton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman. Or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app, and you're good to go.
0: Now, back to the story.
1: In January of 1963, 31-year-old Eric Cook had already killed two women, attacking them in their beds while he prowled the quiet neighborhoods of Perth, Western Australia. In addition, he'd run down several women as they walked home at night, though each of his hit-and-run victims recovered to varying degrees.
0: For the most part though, it seemed Cook stole cars to better enable his lifelong habit of nighttime prowling. After an evening on the town, either bowling with friends or drinking at the pub, he'd put on his gloves and creep around Perth's more affluent suburbs.
1: On the evening of Australia Day, January 26th, while the city wound down from a day of celebrations, Cook slipped into stealth mode and began his evening's exploration.
0: In one of the first homes he hit in the suburb of Como, Cook found a 22 caliber rifle. Possibly thinking back to his success with firearms in basic training, Cook swiped the rifle along with a box of ammunition. Now armed like never before, the city was at his mercy.
1: He stole a yellow Holden FE and drove it to the beachside suburb of Cottesloe. Once there, he set out on foot looking for targets. He didn't have to search for long. Not far from where he parked, he saw Rowena Reeves and her married boyfriend, Nick August, drinking in a parked car.
0: Cook was never one to resist the urge to play Peeping Tom, so he stopped to watch the couple. When Nick noticed they had an audience, he yelled at Cook, throwing an empty beer bottle at the creep. In response, Cook raised the rifle, aiming right at Nick.
1: Rowena spotted the gun first and pulled Nick down just in time. Her hand was still on his neck when the bullet flew through the car. It grazed Nick and lodged in Rowena's wrist, shattering a bone.
0: Not waiting to get a good look at their attacker, Nick started the car and sped away, leaving Cook behind, frustrated but still armed.
1: Not yet satisfied, Cook prowled the streets of Cottesloe, eventually coming upon an open apartment door. Just inside the flat, he spotted 31-year-old Brian Weir sleeping in his bed. Brian, an avid athlete and participant in the local surf club, was due to be married that coming April. Eric Cook knew none of that when he shot Brian in the head at point-blank range.
0: As Brian bled out, Cook took stock of the situation and decided he wasn't done. When he was sure the coast was clear, Cook left Brian's apartment to head west to the nearby suburb of Nedlands. There, on Vincent Street, he approached a large brick house It was owned by Connie Allen, a widow with grown children. She took in young boarders from the local university to fill her empty home.
1: Connie's hospitality was so popular that one student, 19-year-old John Sturkey, set up a makeshift bedroom on the back veranda. So Cook didn't even need to find an open door to claim his next victim. He got close to John, aimed the rifle at his head, and pulled the trigger.
0: Leaving the scene of the crime, he walked through the back fence into an adjoining property, coming out onto Louise Street. By now, it was around 4 a.m. on January 27th, so the Walmsley family was startled awake by their ringing doorbell.
1: As 54-year-old George Walmsley opened the door to see who could possibly be calling at this hour, Cook took careful aim from where he waited down the garden path. As soon as he had George in his sights, he showed off his excellent aim shooting the man through the forehead.
0: While George's wife and daughter ran to his aid, Cook turned on his heel and headed for home. On the way, he stopped to throw the rifle into a section of scrubland where he was sure no one would find it.
1: And with that, Cook's shooting spree was over. The sun rose over Perth, and as Cook settled in for a morning nap, his victims were discovered and rushed to the hospital. John Sturkey and George Walmsley both died shortly after arrival, but doctors were able to save Brian Weir. However, the bullet in his brain caused irreparable damage, and the remaining three years of his life were marked by profound disability.
0: As word of the shooting spread... Fear rippled across Perth. With a population of less than 500,000, the senseless violence was earth-shaking. Where once people slept with doors unlocked or ajar, many now locked themselves in, resolving to stay away from windows until the shooter was caught.
1: Responding to the palpable fear, the government resolved to flood the city with light. Usually, the street lamps turned off around 1 a.m. each morning. But following Cook's latest spree, they remained on until sunrise each day.
0: Hoping to shed even more light on the situation, police assembled a task force to work around the clock. Ballistics experts confirmed that the bullets in each shooting matched, confirming the presence of a single gunman. In response, 60,000 of Western Australia's 75,000 registered rifles were tested in an effort to find the murder weapon. But the search came up empty.
1: The desperation to capture the killer was so great that two local newspapers offered rewards for information leading to an arrest. Still, despite the wave of tips flooding in, Eric Cook remained off investigators' radar.
0: So on February 9th, 1963, Cook was once again up to his old tricks, roaming the streets of Perth in a stolen car. It was late in the evening when he saw 17-year-old Rosemary Anderson walking alone. As he'd proved many times before, a woman walking by herself was irresistible to cook. So he doubled back to come around behind the teenager.
1: Rosemary was miserable. She'd just fought with her boyfriend, 19-year-old John Button, and stormed out to walk home. He'd followed in his car, begging for forgiveness and offering her a ride home. Stubborn, Rosemary refused. So John backed off, wanting to give her some space. He parked the car, resolving to try again in a few minutes.
0: It was in those few minutes that Cook spotted Rosemary and decided to follow her. Just moments after she caught his eye, Cook sped up behind Rosemary and hit her with his stolen car.
1: He collided with her with such force that her body was thrown up over the car and landed in the sand alongside the road. Satisfied with his work, Cook rushed off.
0: Meanwhile, John Button caught up to Rosemary, finding her crumpled body in the sand. The frantic teen rushed to get his barely alive girlfriend into the car, then raced to a doctor's house nearby.
1: Rosemary was badly injured, so the doctor called for an ambulance and the police. While his girlfriend was rushed to the hospital, police detained John for questioning. It wasn't John's first time speaking to police. Three years earlier, they'd questioned him over the death of Jillian Brewer because he mowed the lawns at her building. But now, he was held for hours while detectives went over his story with him, trying to poke holes in his version of events and suggesting that he was lying.
0: Later the next day, after over 24 hours in police custody, John was informed that Rosemary was dead. She was Cook's fifth murder victim but no one realized she'd been claimed by a serial killer. Instead, all eyes were on the devastated boyfriend.
1: In a state of shock and guilt, John falsely confessed to running down Rosemary, herding back to police the version of events they suggested.
0: Unfortunately, false confessions are not an anomaly. More than a quarter of the people exonerated through efforts by the US-based Innocence Project made confessions before their conviction. According to Saul Kassin, a psychologist and leading expert in interrogation, young people are particularly vulnerable to making false confessions. If they're stressed or tired, the risk increases. 19-year-old John Button, having been awake for over 24 hours and just informed his girlfriend was dead, would have been in an intense state of sleep deprivation, grief, and, yes, stress.
1: So, because of John's coerced confession, police didn't investigate Rosemary's death. With no fear of being caught, Cook was back on the streets in less than a week. On the night of February 15th, he entered Lucy Modrill's flat via her back door, which she left propped open for her cat.
0: As Lucy stirred at the noise he was making, Cook hit her over the head, then strangled her until she passed out. With his victim no longer able to fight back, 32-year-old Cook strangled her to death with the cord from a lamp.
1: It was his first bloodless murder, and now Lucy's lifeless form lay before him on the bed. So with nothing to stop him, he had sex with her still warm body.
0: It's possible his decision to defile Lucy related to Cook's sexual inadequacy. If he raped her when she was still alive, he risked her fighting back, rejecting him. But now, she was unable to reject him, nor offer an unwanted perspective on his sexual prowess.
1: When he was done, he dragged Lucy's corpse through the back door and across the lawn. Perhaps sensing that her mistress needed avenging, Lucy's cat, Mudguts, emerged from the dark and attacked Cook, scratching and biting him as he went.
0: It's unclear what Cook's ultimate goal was in moving Lucy's body. Whether he intended to dump her elsewhere or not, he didn't make it far. He left her sprawled on a neighbor's lawn.
1: His night now complete, he left the scene for Lucy's neighbors to discover at dawn. With Cook's latest murder, a fresh wave of titillated gossip and rumor set off across the city.
0: Much like at the Panina berkman inquest, police announced that Lucy's death was unrelated to the January shootings. It was a conclusion that likely split the focus of police efforts. Officials remained entirely unaware that for all of the unsolved crimes, they were looking for just one killer. Their man was still very much on the loose and he wasn't done killing
1: coming up the news finally closes around eric cook now back to the story
0: by mid 1963 32 year old eric cook had all of perth on edge he'd killed 6 people so far allowing other men to take the fall for two of those crimes In May of that year, John Button was sentenced to 10 years in prison with hard labor for the murder of his girlfriend, Rosemary Anderson. As far as Cook was concerned, that was one less crime police would be hunting him for.
1: That left the prolific prowler to carry on as before, breaking into homes around Perth. In his youth, he'd snuck into empty houses in his neighborhood. But as an adult, he was bolder, not caring if people were home. It's what led to some of his seemingly spontaneous murders.
0: On June 15th, he entered the flat of three young women, taking advantage of a small open window. Once he was inside, the noise awoke 20-year-old Carmel Reed. Moving quickly, Cook seized an umbrella and began beating Carmel. But when she screamed and fought back, he ran from the apartment.
1: It's unclear what made Cook choose to kill only sometimes and other times to leave his victims alive but it's possible it had to do with the readiness of a murder weapon. In Carmel's bedroom, the only thing he could find was an umbrella, which made for a poor cudgel. But the next weapon he found was decidedly more deadly.
0: On August 10th, Cook snuck into a home in Cottesloe. When he found another 22 rifle instead of cash, he accepted the offering and left, braving the rain for a night in the shadows. It was time to find his next target.
1: His wanderings brought him to the suburb of Dalkeith, where he saw an open garage door. It was too tempting to resist, and he slunk towards the house. Inside, he found 18-year-old Shirley MacLeod studying on the couch, her back to him.
0: 18-year-old Shirley was babysitting for Carl and Wendy Dowd's young son, but the baby was asleep, and she was focused on her studies. All Cook saw was an oblivious victim. Without disturbing Shirley, he raised his stolen rifle, took aim, and fired a single shot through her head. Then he left the Dowds' home the way he entered, leaving Shirley's upright body still perched over her notes, where the young couple found her just hours later.
1: On his way home, Cook stopped to hide the rifle. In February, he had thrown his weapon away, not caring where it landed. But now, perhaps wanting to retrieve it the next time he felt murderous, he stowed it carefully under a bush near his neighborhood.
0: It had been months since Perth's last unsolved murder, and Shirley's death set off a new wave of panic across the city. Like after his February shooting spree, locals locked themselves indoors, refusing to leave. People stopped going to parties and visiting friends, which worked out well, because babysitters were too stricken to accept any jobs.
1: It was a nightmare from which many feared they'd never wake. It seemed everyone knew someone affected by the senseless attacks, but no one had any clue who to blame. And yet, officials were determined to capture the killer terrorizing the city.
0: With renewed vigor, detectives were organized into teams, working in 12-hour shifts. It was a 24-hour operation. Some 50 detectives went door-to-door through the city, interviewing around 8,000 people, hoping someone knew something, even if they didn't know it. And finally, Perth's police force caught a break.
1: On August 16th, almost a week after Shirley's murder, a couple out for a stroll came across Cook's hidden rifle. They left it under the bush, but reported it to police.
0: Detectives seized upon the best lead they'd had so far. The rifle was left in its hiding place, and police set up a hideout of their own in a backyard overlooking the shrubbery. They waited in a camouflaged tent, trading off shifts so that the rifle was under constant surveillance.
1: For two weeks, officers watched the undisturbed bush, hoping their killer would return for his weapon. And on August 31st, their patience was rewarded. 32-year-old Eric Cook parked his car right next to the bush, got out, and reached for the rifle.
0: Police were on him in a flash. They tackled him to the ground, then spirited him away to answer questions. On the drive to the station, Cook freely offered confessions about all of the homes he'd burgled recently, perhaps hoping to emphasize his status as burglar, not murderer.
1: He made up a story about seeing the rifle earlier in the month. He'd come back to take it to sell. he told police. He flatly denied having anything to do with Shirley MacLeod's murder.
0: But though Cook lied, the evidence did not. A shell casing found in the back of his car matched the rifle that killed the 18-year-old. And when police arrived at Cook's home with a search warrant, Sally confirmed that her husband arrived home late the night of Shirley's murder. Cook's long-suffering wife was loyal to her marriage, but honest above all.
1: When presented with the facts, Cook finally confessed. He owned up to Shirley's murder but insisted he was blacked out at the time. He couldn't remember a thing and had no explanation for why he did it.
0: When news of Cook's arrest broke the next morning, relief spread across Perth. Everyone was sure the nightmare was at last over. Several days later, Cook confessed to the January 26th shooting spree as well. Again, pressing him for a reason. The only explanation Cook could offer was, I just wanted to hurt somebody.
1: Throughout September, the charges against Cook piled up. Displaying an extraordinary memory, he recounted many of his burglaries, recalling exact amounts of money stolen at each place, as well as his many assaults on sleeping women.
0: And with these confessions, he also finally admitted to the murders that sent other men to jail. Daryl Beamish was still serving life with hard labor for Jillian Brewer's death, and John Button was serving a decade behind bars for the vehicular murder of his girlfriend, Rosemary Anderson.
1: But detectives were disinclined to believe Cook's confessions. After all, both Daryl and John had also confessed. Even after Cook walked detectives through Rosemary's death at the scene of the crime, they didn't believe him. Just like John Button, they thought Cook was a liar and they told him so. They repeated it so much, he withdrew both confessions.
0: Still, Cook was charged with the 1959 murder of Panina Berkman, as well as the more recent slaying of Lucy Maudrill.
1: When Cook's mother spoke to police, she offered them insight into his troubled upbringing. Christian Cook seemed haunted by her husband's open dislike of their son, and despaired that the police never helped her stop Vivian's abuse. Displaying the kind of insight research has backed up, she suggested that Cook's violent childhood caused his murderous adulthood. He was a good boy, she believed, and never wanted to hurt anyone.
0: But the courts weren't content to take Christian's word for it, In the lead-up to his trial, Cook met with Dr. Aaron Samuel Ellis to determine his mental capacity. In his report, Dr. Ellis declared that Cook seemed totally deficient in emotion. He had no remorse for his actions, and he had a complete inability to put himself in the place of others or to imagine that they have any rights or feelings. He'd been in prison many times, but was obviously not capable of learning from the experience.
1: This assessment, though offering something of an explanation for Cook's actions, did nothing to excuse them. Thus, Dr. Ellis confirmed that Cook was mentally fit to stand trial.
0: Following this, Cook was assessed by other psychological professionals who were curious about his violent nature. Psychologist Leon Blank visited Cook in prison, and after conducting a series of tests, reported that Cook was a person of bright, normal intelligence who had a psychopathic character disorder. In his assessment, Dr. Blank noted that Cook himself seemed curious about his own actions. Just like the doctors studying him, he wanted to know why he'd turned to murder, so he was cooperative and enthusiastic during his conversations.
1: Dr. Blank's diagnosis carried a lot of weight at Cook's trial, where psychopathy was not a legally recognized mental disease. However, Cook's defense team offered their own psychological expert, Dr. Ian James, who diagnosed Cook with schizophrenia.
0: Schizophrenia, Dr. James testified, was easily mistaken for psychopathy. But unlike the latter, schizophrenia was a recognized mental disease and might have mitigated the charges against Cook.
1: But the jurors weren't swayed by Dr. James's testimony. Perhaps still reeling from the state of fear Cook's killing spree induced, the jury took just over an hour to find him guilty. Following their verdict, the judge sentenced Cook to hang for his crimes.
0: After Cook's trial, John Button launched an appeal of his conviction for murdering Rosemary Anderson. Despite Cook's own testimony at the trial, John's appeal was rejected. Though both men confessed to the crime, John confessed first, and the early bird gets the jail time.
1: On October 26, 1964, a little under a year after he was sentenced, 33-year-old Eric Cook was marched to the gallows at Fremantle Prison. Before the hood was placed over his head, he swore in a Bible that he killed Gillian Brewer and Rosemary Anderson. He was desperate for Darrell and John not to pay for his crimes.
0: Just moments later, the executioner pulled the lever, sending Cook to his death. It was over in less than a minute, but the fight to clear the names of Daryl Beamish and John Button took considerably longer.
1: If you're looking for small mercies, take solace in the fact that John spent five years behind bars instead of his full 10-year sentence. He was paroled in December of 1967. However, Daryl Beamish served his full 15 years for the murder of Gillian Brewer, and was released in 1977. In
0: 1998, West Australian journalist Estelle Blackburn published her book, Broken Lives, detailing Eric Cook's crimes and the two wrongful convictions. Following publication, John Button's case was formally reopened in February 2002, Thirty-nine years after his conviction, John was at last exonerated. Three years later, in April of 2005, Daryl Beamish's conviction was also overturned.
1: It had been 41 years since Eric Edgar Cook drew his last breath, and only then did the lasting effects of his crimes finally begin to fade. But John and Daryl weren't Cook's only surviving victims. Some of the women he attacked suffered from lifelong injuries and disabilities.
0: Eric Cook's actions echoed through the decades. After starting life as a boy who hated when people looked at his hair lip, who made himself smaller to avoid drawing his father's ire, Cook became a man with untold influence. From the shadows, he changed the lives of his victims, their families, and the city of Perth forever.
1: Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with a new episode.
0: For more information on Eric Edgar Cook, amongst the many sources we used, we found Broken Lives by Estelle Blackburn extremely helpful to our
1: research. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Serial Killers for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker.
0: To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. We'll see you next time.
1: Have a killer week.
0: Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Joel Callen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.
1: Hi, listeners. Remember to check out the new podcast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer, men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.